Welcome to Faith and Culture, Women in Ministry, presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. My name is Pastor Brian Kiley. At Bridgeway, we desire for our annual Faith and Culture series to be an opportunity to discuss an important cultural issue with courage, humility, and convicted civility. As with everything else at Bridgeway, we want to be scripture-soaked and spirit-led as we engage these conversations. This particular Faith and Culture series was recorded live at Bridgeway in November of 2021. We chose to discuss women in ministry because we believe it is critical to understand God's heart for both men and women in church leadership roles. In this session and the three sessions that follow, you may find the information challenging. It may even make you uncomfortable. That's okay. We want to encourage you to listen deeply and to listen to the full four-session presentation before drawing conclusions. The material in these sessions is not new. We aren't the first church to study what the Bible has to say on this topic. What we hope to do is provide fresh perspective from trusted voices that will help you get a better sense of what God's Word says about this important topic. It's crucial to note that this presentation is not motivated by a political or denominational viewpoint. We are not interested in taking sides or promoting agendas. Instead, we hope to winsomely bring understanding that will help you think biblically about the roles of women and men in the church. As always, if any of this content brings up questions, you can email us at ask, A-S-K, at bridgeway.church. Now, without any further ado, here is Pastor Lance Hahn and session one of Faith and Culture, Women in Ministry. Well, you are in for a treat. We got a lot of material to cover. Here's how the four weeks are going to go. I'm going to be laying out for you uh, today the Old Testament. We're going to be talking about creation and the fall, the design of Israel, and all those pieces. Next time we get together, I'm going to be talking about Jesus Christ and his ministry and his teachings and engagement with women. The third week, we're going to be talking about the Apostle Paul, his ministry with women, and also his writings on women in ministry. We're going to wrap up on our fourth week. We're going to be talking about why this is so important. Why we're addressing it here, what is the vision that we have for what the church ought to be today? We're going to be laying all those out. So what I need from you is to hear me out for all four weeks to get all the information. There are some of you that are here today and you're saying, man, go for it, buddy. You're, you're only catching up with what I already think. Well, that's great. I still need you to listen to all the information because, once again, the way that I view things and the way that I see Scripture are not always according to a party or a group, right? We're going to be talking about it very uniquely. There are some of you that all your life you've had a very traditional view of women in ministry, and a lot of what I'm going to be sharing with you feels brand new to you, once again. Give me all four weeks to be able to lay out. This is the shortest I can make it, all right? So in case you're wondering, man, this guy's talking so long. Why is he going so long? This is the shortest that I know how to make it because we're going to be covering a lot of material. If we're going to talk about anything that matters, you're usually going to see me take it from Genesis all the way through Revelation in order to hear the full heart of God on the matter. Now, once again, in the end... 
we can still disagree and be in deep fellowship. What I'm laying out for you is not a dividing issue in the church. Is it important? Yes, it is. Is it vital to the health of the church? Yeah, it is. But is it an element of first priority? It is not. So once again, in the end, you may be able to consider all that I've said and say, wow, I really see that a little bit different. And and here's the reasons why. I will never begrudge anyone that listens all the way through and then says, you know what? I don't see it like that. To me, you have my highest honor and my highest respect. All I'm asking for is an opportunity to lay out what I see in God's word and for you to consider that with honesty. Yeah? Does that sound all right? Okay, well, we're going to get into this. Why are we spending four weeks on a subject that gets very little attention in Scripture? Now, I would argue that it doesn't get very little attention, but I understand percentage-wise it is not all over every book. I get that. So why are we spending four weeks on this? Well, we've had some historic challenges. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, Men have dominated women throughout history. Ancient history is full of men in charge, women being subjugated. And some cultures handled it throughout history well, and some of them did not. As a matter of fact, when we get to our our own faith, when we're going all the way back into our roots into Judaism, we realize that God allowed and helped mankind post-fall to settle into a patriarchal pattern. The Old Testament reveals that the nation of Israel was set up by God with a patriarchal and hierarchical structure to it. The New Testament was operated by and large with that same view, and for the last 2,000 years, many elements of the church, the greater church, has operated in a hierarchical structure, right? The current reality is that many traditional churches, many conservative streams of the church are still run primarily by men, and they purport a primarily male-dominated view. Now, the problem with that is that these patterns and structures throughout history leave women at a disadvantage, an inability to use their gifts and talents, and it could possibly be hindering the church's ability to be drawing out our best leaders from a very full pool of believers. Thereby, thereby, that would be hobbling the church's elements that God gave us for victory. In other words, what am I saying? It's possible we are not as healthy as we possibly could be. That's why I think it's a big deal. So why is it that some denominations still view it in a very hierarchical fashion? As a matter of fact, if you take the 19 main denominations that are out there in Christianity, 10 of those main denominations ordain women into the highest level of leadership, six do not, and three are mixed, meaning a big portion of their denomination does and a big portion does not. They haven't quite figured it all out for themselves yet, all right? But there are two common viewpoints on the issue of women in ministry leadership throughout the years, and they've been given fancy names, right? Those words maybe you've heard before. The first one is complementarian. 
complementarian. It, it purports that men and women are different. They have different roles. They have different ways that God uses them. And theoretically, this difference creates a hierarchical structure that doesn't demean the value of women, but it restricts what women are allowed to do in the church, in the home, and in society. Now, the other fancy word for another group is egalitarian. Egalitarian, that teaches that men and women are equal. Now, the extent of that equality can simply be spiritual equality in the eyes of God, or it can go all the way to the side of discussing sameness, that there is no distinction between men and women at all. So it's a very wide view. Well, as you might imagine, if you know my teaching at all, I am not going to jump in either camp. I don't play that game, right? So I will probably be somewhere in the radical middle. Does that make sense? So what you're going to hear from what I'm going to lay out is what I see in Scripture regardless of camps. That's going to create a hybrid version. It means that I'm going to be drawing truth from where I see it regardless of the camp that it's in. It means that I'm going to be laying out for you something that's going to kind of be like this and kind of be like that. Therefore, my presentation is not a balanced, I'm going to share all of this side and argue it, and I'm going to share this side and argue it. We do not have time to do that. It would take way too long. So I'm going to present what I see in Scripture, and we'll move on from there. Besides, I believe that the hierarchical traditional view has been taught in the church for 2,000 years, and I believe it's very well ingrained in most theological circles that at least know what it teaches. But just in case you don't, I'm going to recap it for you. This is the traditional view. God revealed himself to mankind as male. He revealed himself as the Father, the Son, and even the Holy Spirit uses a male pronoun. God created Adam first, and then he created Eve as a helper to Adam. So man has priority. Additionally, Eve was the one that sinned, so she is further reduced in her capacity. The Old Testament law structure and the design of Israel as a people group and nation was built by God to be hierarchical and patriarchal, including only allowing males to be priests and Levites in God's temple. The New Testament revealed Jesus as a man who chose 12 men to be his apostles on whom he would launch the early Christian community. Paul the Apostle addressed the issue of women in the church, and in all three of the main passages addressing this issue seems to clearly indicate that women are not to teach in the church, speak in the church, or have authority in the church. So that's the view. All right, let's go home. Right? I mean, isn't that, you lay that out and somebody was like, yep, that's exactly what I thought. Okay. All right. So what's the problem with that? If all of that is true, if both ancient and recent history has operated in the same way for thousands of years and Paul clearly taught on it, why are we discussing anything different? Well, the debate is not based on the facts but on the interpretation of the facts. What you are not going to hear me say is that the main facts are incorrect. 
It's how ought we to look at those facts. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to try to talk about. Lots of people believe a lot of things that they think the Bible clearly teaches but are incorrect. Our job is to do our due diligence and look at theological matters afresh and seek God's heart. It's what Jesus tried to do with the Pharisees, and it's what we're going to try to do today. I do not believe that rigid complementarianism is biblically accurate. That is what I'm laying out for you. I truly believe that the most biblical and accurate reading of Scripture in context does not favor that view for the local church. Why would I say that? Because the hierarchical tension that emerged from the fall of mankind between men and women was part of the curse. Do you realize that? It was for a secular world that said no to God and sought to live as their own gods. It was not a pattern to be chosen for God-fearing believers. Lots of difficult things came from the curse, and I'm not sure we want to continue a pattern that is designed off sin and curse. I don't think that's what we want. For example, Adam was told in his curse that he would have no joy, peace, or rest in his work. Jesus came and said, that's not true for my children. As a matter of fact, I give you a Sabbath rest, and you should be able to have great return for the work that you do. In other words, that curse concept was not to set a tone. Does that make sense? All right. Second thing, we are not Israel, right? Israel was indeed set up in a hierarchical structure, male-dominated institutions, but we are not Israel. Secondly, the king of Israel, Jesus Christ, made some significant changes to Israel in how things should be done. Did he not? For example, we don't follow the kosher laws, unclean, clean foods. Why? Because Jesus declared all foods clean. Is it not true that Gentiles are allowed to go into the temple and be near God? Yes. Is it true that the disabled are allowed to be in God's presence? Yes. Lots have changed in Israel and the way that it used to be. Should that be the pattern of how we live today? Not quite sure it should. Just because a view is old doesn't make it right. That was one of the challenges that Jesus had coming in and trying to breathe in the new covenant. People said, that's not how we do it. He said, but I'm God. That's how I do it. And that's a whole different ballgame, yeah? So, for example, consider how long it took for the church to finally agree that slavery was wrong and not back it up in Scripture. That's a problem. Consider how long it took to establish the concept of the Trinity in its full form. Most of us imagine that the early church taught the Trinity. It did not. It didn't even understand the Trinity fully. That came hundreds of years later. Consider the idea that for many years, the King James Bible was taught because it was older to be the best version when in fact its scholarship was weaker than versions that were coming out after it. Just because something is old doesn't mean it's accurate. And here's the other thing. I don't believe that everyone agreed the whole time. As a matter of fact, Historic men and women have called out for change and a new way to operate since the dawn of time. In the Old Testament, 
women called out for fairness and equality. In the New Testament, the ministry of Christ and Paul was shockingly different than the culture around them. And for the last 2,000 years, many voices were calling out to the church to change in light of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So no, it's not like everything's been static and steady, and now all of a sudden we're coming up with something new. As a matter of fact, everything I'm laying out for you has already been talked about for thousands of years. It's just not new. I believe that God has wanted things different for 2,000 years, but we weren't listening. I believe that what Christ began and what he clarified should have rolled out a different era, not just in salvation, but how the church should be run, its institution. I believe that Paul and Christ set in motion the equality of ethnicities in the removal of slavery while still operating within it. And in the same way, I believe that Christ and Paul set a new way of looking at women in ministry while still operating largely in a patriarchal system. Here's how God teaches mankind. I'll give you a term. It's called maturing revelation. You go, I haven't heard that one before. That's because I made it up. (laughs) Maturing revelation. You see, God knew from the beginning what we would be talking about in 2021. That's not surprising to him. But he can't give everybody everything all up front, so he does it as we mature. So, for example, Adam and Eve only got three commands, yeah? They got three commands. That was multiply, manage the world, don't eat that fruit. That was it. That's all they could handle. They were fresh out of creation. Does that make sense? They were right now simple in the world, so God gave them three commands. Was he ever going to make it more complicated? Uh, Yeah. As a matter of fact, all of a sudden we end up with post-fall instructions in the Ten Commandments, then it gets more detailed. Moses is given a couple books full of rules and codes and regulations that we call the Mosaic and Levitical law, right? And then when Israel was set up as a society, more rules, more regulations were added, and King David and the prophets kept learning about what God wanted. And then Jesus came and threw the whole thing apart and started saying, no, 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 let me tell you what I really meant. That whole sacrificial system you've been doing for thousands of years, yeah, 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 that was to point out your inability to deal with your sin, and I'm the only Messiah that's gonna save you. In other words... There's a progression of understanding based on how mature you are. So, mankind has to grow, and God gives you more and more clarity as you're going along as a human being. We do that with toddlers, do we not? Right? Hey, don't go in the street. Does that mean for the rest of their lives they're never allowed to enter a street? No. When they are more mature and they understand why we told them not to go in the street, we give them greater clarity. We say to them, well, remember, there are cars in the street. Once they compensate for that, they can go on and have greater freedom. Does that make sense? That's what God has been doing with mankind all along. Jesus said he gave us a new covenant in his blood, and he set into motion an entirely new reality. The old codes, the old rules worked for the old way of doing things, but everything was practically changing. The rest of the New Testament is writings from people trying to understand this new reality. 
and what it all means. Everybody loves the idea of saying, man, I can't wait to go back to the book of Acts. Oh, that was so great. The book of Acts, the church was a mess. They had no clue what they were doing. Was it powerful and fresh and awesome and the Holy Spirit was rolling? Yes, that part is great. Institutionally, they were a nightmare because in one day, 3,000 people got saved and they turned from a church of 120 to 3120 in about 24 hours. They've been reeling ever since, right? So they were in a growth phase. They were trying to figure out what parts of Judaism do they keep, which parts do they drop. If you remember reading in the book of Acts, a lot of Jews struggled with how to interact with Gentiles. They're like, for thousands of years, we've been told not to touch you, not to get around you, not to go in your house, and now all of a sudden, we've been told, we're all cool. I don't exactly know what to do with that, because I'm freaked out by being in your presence right now. So it's a growth learning curve, yeah? The Bible was written by the Holy Spirit working through the church. The great news is that both the church is alive and the Holy Spirit is still alive. So he is still sharing things with his church for the last 2,000 years. God has been leading the church worldwide to figure out his heart. And we're trying to pick that up. I'm gonna cite one more time. Praise the Lord that Christians in the church finally figured out the heart of God for equality of brotherhood regardless of ethnicity and color. Y'all, that took us way too long to figure that one out. If you go back and reread scripture, you realize Paul the apostle in the book of Philemon was trying to root it out 2,000 years ago. We were a little slow to catch up. So once again, it was always there, but we collectively as a community had to catch up. All right, what I'm trying to do is make sure that we look afresh at all the facts and try to catch up with the heart of God that was there the entire time. How does Bridgeway resolve difficult subjects? Well, there's a million opinions out there. There's brilliant people on every side of this argument. Once again, I am not here to tell you that we are the smartest. I'm here to tell you we chase after God. That's all that we care about. Bridgeway is Bible-centric. We are Christ-centered. We consider the Bible as inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. And that means that what the Bible says on a subject is of paramount importance. Way more than, oh, what these people say or this group says don't care as much. What does the Bible say? That's our focus. So we're going to lean heavily into biblical interpretation. 75% of our time together over four weeks is simply scripture analysis. Why? Because it's God we want to hear from, not just commentary. And I got to say up front, society's influence is valuable, but in no way determines what Bridgeway believes. Let me explain. The Bible's a big book. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about. But we need to end up highlighting and looking clearly at different issues that pop up in society. For example, recently we've had a lot of changes in our society, and so we are now wrestling with issues like uh, 
LGBTQ. Well, prior, that was kept in a very different, quieter area. We didn't have to address it as clearly for a long time. Well, now we do. Does it mean society tells us what to think? No, but it means we better figure out what we think based on God's word so we can give a reason for the hope that lies within. Society merely highlights what do we need to be aware of if we're going to share the gospel with them. That's what it's for. It doesn't matter if their opinion is different. It just means we need to talk about it. Currently, right now, we have not had for hundreds of years a focus on gluttony in society. We have not been talking about it a lot in church. We do not have sermons on gluttony. We don't have, but there was periods in history when it was important. So you would talk about it more. But once again, society is who we are ministering to. So of course, we're going to be determined by people that don't know us very well. And when we don't handle a subject they care about well, it gives them another reason to deny hearing the gospel. And that we cannot have. So, does society's opinions matter? Yes, to bring up the subject. No, when it comes to what the subject should be in the eyes of God. Does that make sense? All right, let's be real clear on that. Either it's right or it's not. It doesn't matter what popular opinion is, only God's opinion really matters. And this is the last piece before we open up God's word. I have been dealing with the issue of women in ministry and leadership here at Bridgeway for 24 years. This month, I will have been leading this church for 24 years. That's a really long time. However, I've been uncomfortable with Bridgeway's historic stance in this area for 24 years. As a matter of fact, the first 10 years, I discussed it with our elder board, and then I gave it a rest for five years. And then I began to discuss it again. <laughs> you see, it's not new. It's just time. And here's why I didn't leave. Because once again, is not the temptation in everybody's heart today, if I don't agree with something, I walk away. Well, I am living proof that you do not do that. I have been in disagreement for 24 years, and yet I disagreed, I submitted, and I committed. And I've led here under things that I don't agree with. Now, why didn't I leave? Because part of being in community is being with and loving people you disagree with. That's what community is, y'all. We're all humans trying to sort stuff out and church is supposed to be a place of challenge, not simply reaffirmation of what you already think. If you keep hopping to everywhere that agrees with you, you will learn nothing, but you will have an echo chamber, and it doesn't make you grow. So, I remained believing that God was going to teach me things, and I would suggest that every believer is going to have areas you have to do that. This might be one of those for you. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the beginning and creation. Everything was set in motion in the Garden of Eden. God made people where there weren't any people. 
He was with them and he told them things. Eden was a paradise. Everything was right. Adam loved and partnered with Eve and Eve loved and partnered with Adam and both of them loved and partnered with God and he was with them and it was happy, it was fulfilling, it was adventurous, it was intimate, it was connected, it was powerful and it's what I believe the church should be today. You see, a lot is altered and screwed up what God really wanted. But you know what? I would rather it be in the church here on earth as it is in heaven. I'm not chasing after a marred version. I'm chasing after a pure version. And the pure version was seen in the Garden of Eden before the fall. That's what I'm chasing after. It was God leading and loving his people, and they were partnering to bring glory to his name. But everything went bad. So maybe we can jump back there and see what maybe God's heart was. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says this. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them, notice the plural, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, let's talk about it. This is a little bit confusing because the term man simultaneously can mean a dude and the human race. Man means mankind and the male versus the female. Same word is used, so we get a little bit confused when we read that, right? But here's what we know. Number one, both man and woman are made in the image and likeness of God directly. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Women are not made in the image of man. They are direct God image bearers. That's the Imago Dei. They are direct God likeness and everything that means. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 5, 1 and 2, it says, this is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. All right? All of that is equality language. So far, we have no hierarchy. All right? Number two, both man and woman were given the same commands. That's very important. Have dominion over the world, procreate, don't eat the fruit. Just as man cannot procreate alone, neither can he subdue the world alone. Does that make sense? As a matter of fact, in order to have dominion over the earth, the commands were given to both of them. Man is not given any explicit superior position in the rulership. Turn with me to Genesis 2-7. Genesis chapter 1 is an overview poem. Genesis chapter 2 digs back in and talks about details. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man, this is actually the guy, of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. Go to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. All right. Man was formed from dust, breathed into by God, and became a living being. That word formed is yatsar. All right? Great. Go to verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Go to verse 21. So Yahweh God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Here's what we need to know. It is not good for man to be alone. What does that mean? It means Eve is necessary. If something is not good, God makes it good, and he gave a supplemental. Eve is necessary. Second thing, the term helper is very important. Misunderstanding of this term has caused all sorts of chaos. So let's talk about the term helper. The word used in Genesis for helper is etzer, right? In Hebrew. It is used 21 times. Two times it's used of Eve. 19 times it's used of God. It cannot imply inferiority. God is not inferior to man, correct? God is my helper and my shield. God is my helper and my rock. In no way is it saying, and God gets my coffee. Are we all clear on that? In no way does it say, and then Adam had a very important job. And who's going to get his coffee? So he made a helper suitable to get the coffee. That is not what it means. It is a definition of role. This is very important. It's not referring to hierarchy. It's not a demotion of value. It's a definition of role. When God is the one bringing the help, he's the helper. When the woman is bringing the help, she is the helper. But it only implies what role you're playing at the time. Here's the other thing. Eve was formed, and it's a different word than what was used to form Adam. We don't care to get into the details, but it implies an added layer of complexity. The only reason why that matters is because it doesn't imply inferiority. It's either equal or an added beauty. All right, we move forward. She was formed from Adam's side. Is that correct? Everyone says it's a rib. That is a poor translation. It is the side. Is that like the rabbis used to say, she was formed from the side, not from the foot, not from the head. You know, you've heard all that stuff. I don't know about all that. Here's what I do know. Every time side is used that I can remember in Scripture, it implies partnership. That's what I do know. Then he says, we're going to call her woman for she comes out of man. Do you realize that in Hebrew, it's Esau? 
and ish. Isha and ish, it just means it's the same root word with an adjustment. Why is that important? It's the same but different concept. Yeah? He says, you are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's used two different ways in Scripture. Number one, it means you are my closest relative in my family. Or two, it means a covenant of loyalty. Either way, it means a deep and strong connection. Now, Paul comments in Scripture on the creation account. And notice, here's what he says. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians eleven seven. A couple things I want to note here. Paul, talking about creation, says, For a man ought not to cover his head, for he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. A couple things I want to highlight. Number one, woman is the glory of man, not the image of man. There's not a demotion there. Notice it says that man is the image and glory of God, but only woman is the glory of man. It doesn't repeat the other word. That's important. Second thing, the terms for male and husband and female and wife are the same words. This causes all sorts of problems in interpretation because you can only guess in context. So, once again, if you'll read a passage and it says, wives, submit to your husbands, it actually says, females, submit to your male. Well, in context, your male is your husband. So that's how we know it's wives and husbands. But the words are the same. You have to figure out in context what it means. So this is why it's important to me. What Paul just said was for wives and husbands. That means single women and widows don't submit to men. Are you clear on that? <laughs> wives submit to husbands for the purpose of the family structure. Once you're in a family structure, a new role shifts into place. If you're not in that family structure, it does not. Ah, here's the other thing. Paul drives home a point here, right, totally unclearly, that Eve was made from Adam and for Adam, right? The reason he points that out is that wives would maintain a respect for their husbands with a sign of authority. We're not going to get into roles here. We have some supplemental material we're going to be getting out to you about roles in the home. That's not our, our subject for this series, but there is a lot that goes in there. I teach very clearly there are roles in the home. I teach very clearly that you are opting in when you get married into a different structure, and therefore you have a different role to play. All right. But here's what's interesting. Paul then says, hold on, let me make a correction or a clarification. Woman was made from man, but now men come from women. Are we all clear on how that works? The first woman 
came from a dude. Every other dude has come from a woman ever since then, right? Including Jesus, the Son of God. All right, here was the point. Neither male and husbands nor female and wives are independent of one another. Both sexes need each other, right? There is mutual submission, mutual appreciation, mutual respect demanded. And think about it this way. Just because a man came from his mother's womb, does that mean he's inferior to her? No. Just because his mom chose to have him and he was born for her, does that mean he's inferior? No, then be very careful when you start saying, woman was created for Adam, so that makes her inferior, right? Or that she came from him makes her inferior. Those are not true. We have a lot of assumptions that we make in our heads that are not biblically accurate. One last clarification on creation. There is a big problem with creation order. Paul made a deal about this, so I'm blaming him. He set us on a bit of a wild goose chase, and here's why. He said, well, remember, Adam was formed first, then Eve, as if we're all supposed to go, ooh, like we knew what in the world that meant. Here's the problem with it. What matters most? Do you want to be made first or last? Because here's what's interesting. He's like, Adam was made first. All right, let's play that game. Do you guys remember the order of creation? What was the first thing made? It was light. Is light more important than mankind? No, but it was made first. Oh, I get it. But you go, no, no, no. He was winding up and creating more and more and more. And then he was like, crescendo, here's my awesome people that I made. All right, so you're saying last is more important. Uh-oh, that would make it woman, not man. You guys understand the problem here? Okay, let me give you another one. If firstborn means more important, we have a whole messianic line problem. Because it was not the firstborn son, but it was the promised son. There was a bunch of them that were not the firstborn that were used in the line of the Messiah. All right, here's another problem. If first to arrive is more important, then John the Baptist is more important than Jesus. Are we all follow, realizing there's some errors when we start trying to make assumptions in this? Now, Adam being made first was purposeful. God didn't mess up. That was intentional. What does it mean? I have no idea. In the same way where I don't understand why the son had to die for the sins of the world, but not the other members of the Godhead. I have no idea. It was purposeful. God knows why the Father is the Father, and the Son is the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. I don't know what that means, but it's intentional. Jesus knew what the fall of mankind did and what he would do to change it. So let's talk about the fall of mankind. Okay, we all know the story pretty well. I'll paraphrase. Genesis 3 says that a serpent slithered in there and went head to head with Eve. And he's like, man, I think God's holding out on you. You should eat that fruit. It looks pretty awesome. It'll make you super smart. She was like, hmm, maybe so. And she eats of it. And then the Bible says she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate of it. And that was the problem. Yep, that's the story. All right. So whose fault is it and for what? Right? Once again, Paul the Apostle is the instigator here. <laughs> right? This guy, he's so brilliant, the rest of us are, are all trying to catch up to him and go, I don't know what you're talking about. Because here's what he said. 
he ends up mentioning in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. First of all, I don't know what all that stuff means, but I do know this, that's complicated. And here's why. Was Eve deceived? Yep, very clearly. Was she ever going to win that battle? Nope. She was going head to head with what the Bible says was the pinnacle of God's creation. Lucifer is a cherubim. Do we really believe that a human being was ever going to win a battle of wits? The answer was never. So why in the world did he select her? Her job was to obey, not try to outthink the devil, right? All right, great. But does it mean that Satan went after her because she was the weaker one or the smarter one? Let's play this out for a moment. Let's say she was obviously the weaker one. Here's how this plays out. Hey, I'm a snake. I think you should eat the fruit. Well, that sounds like a great idea. Right? This next scene goes something like this. Hey, babe, I just ate the fruit. Wow, you're an idiot. Why would you do that? I've never trusted you in my life. I guess I'm going to have to have God build me another one. That's how it should have went. But it didn't go that way, did it? No, how did it go? Uh, hey, if I take her out, it's a combo pack. I'll get that dude too. Watch this. She's always been the brains of the operation. I go head to head with her. I take her out. He'll do anything she says. And how did it work? Ta-da! Very well. All right? So here's my question for you. Who's more responsible for the greater sin? She got deceived by a brilliant genius, and Adam did it on purpose. Uh-oh. As a matter of fact, the rest of the Bible ends up saying that how sin got in was through the fall of Adam. So the greater responsibility is on Adam. It even says Jesus Christ is the second Adam. Through the first Adam came all sin. Through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came redemption. In other words, all of the Bible steers and says that Adam is responsible for the fall of mankind and the sin. So who's responsible for what? So this, do you understand why I'm a little bit confused when it says, well, she was deceived? Of course she was deceived. But notice what happened when the fall hit. There was a breakdown in relationship. Prior, they were naked. Everybody was cool. Hey, I trust you. You trust me. The minute the fall went down, walls went up. I don't trust you. I need to start putting on clothes. I don't know what you're going to say. You're probably going to hurt me. And now all of a sudden there becomes a tension that goes back and forth. Then what happens? A breakdown with God. Yeah? I'm going to hide from God. I can't be with God. All this stuff starts to break down. And then everyone starts playing the blame game. It was his fault. It was her fault. It was a, the snake's fault, right? And then God curses the three of them. Do you remember that? 
to the snake, he curses him one way. To Adam, he curses another way. But here's Eve's curse. She got two of them. Number one, multiplication of pain and childbearing, and we're not sure what that means. Did she have kids before? How would she know it was going to be worse? She didn't have kids before the fall, right? Okay, so we're not quite sure what that means. And does it mean childbearing or child rearing? We don't know, right? Both of them hurt, yeah? <laughs> the second part of the curse, quote, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Does that sound like the battle of the sexes just began? Sure does. Okay, here's what's so important. When God cursed them, he addressed the woman specifically. Remember, Old Testament structure was you'd only talk to the man about his wife. God didn't do that. He said, I will talk to you as a man, I will talk to you as a woman, and you both owe up to me. That's a very equal strata. And they both got cursed similarly in different areas. All right? Here's the other thing. Eve was cursed in human relationships. Whatever it means, it means that relationally she was going to be dominated by things and it was going to be men in her life. All right? There are three things that, pe- that come from what that curse was. There's three opinions. Does it mean she's going to have sexual attraction and rejection? Does it mean she's going to struggle longing for identity from her husband and affirmation in men but never find it? Or does it mean that she will always want power and control but will always be frustrated because men will have the power and control? Yeah. Okay, here's the bottom line. It can be all three, right? But the bottom line is there was a negative domination that went into play. And that's where ancient Israel was built. Let's talk about ancient Israel. The law was set up for men to be superior to women. The Old Testament does not place women prominently nor on an even playing field with men. Why? Because there was a consequence to the fall. And God lets that play out. When he cursed Eve, he was going to build around that because he was ultimately going to root it out and have Jesus reverse the curse. But until then, he was going to play in the same groove that he played all along, right? What that means is, if I'm gonna let the curse play out, I have to build so that it's so. And he did. In Israel, it was very specifically patriarchal, all right? But I need to talk about the purpose of Israel's structure and why Israel existed as a nation in the first place. Israel was a living, breathing drama played out in front of the world as a tangible demonstration of spiritual truth. What does that mean? Why did God create Israel in the first place? He had lots of people groups. And you go, oh, well, he liked them best. Well, hold on. He likes all of his creation. As a matter of fact, 
If you remember, the reason why Israel was in captivity in Egypt was that the sin of the Amorites had not reached its full measure. In other words, God was working with another people group and telling his kids to hold out for a second. God loves all kinds of people groups. Why create the Jews? Because God wanted one place on earth that it would be here on earth as it was in heaven. He wanted one people group to be so dominated by his reality that if the world ever wanted to say, what is God like? They could look at a tangible nation and figure it out. That's why they're here. But in order to be that living drama, there's some weird stuff about Israel. They know it's weird. As a matter of fact, when he talks about them being holy, it means called out and separate. It means weird. I'm going to build stuff in you that is a spiritual truth show. I'm going to create unclean and clean animals. Right? That's like making stuff up. Hey, do you guys, uh, you guys like bacon? No, we can't eat it. Why not? I don't know. God said no. God hates pigs? I don't think so. But he likes cows more. <laughs> what was that whole strata layer about? What was, the whole, what was the whole sacrificial system about? What were all the, they were all lessons for the whole world to look in and know about the nature of God. Okay, so once again, other weird things. Uh, if you were handicapped, you're not allowed to go into temple and you're not allowed to be a priest. That sounds awfully rude. Does it not? What was his point? Perfection. Only perfection can go before God. Why is that important? It's a living drama. Sin doesn't get to go before God. Anything less than perfect doesn't go before God. Oh, look, you're going to have a hard time getting into heaven. Guess you need a Savior. Ta-da! When you realize how Israel is designed, you start looking at their structures a little different and realize that wasn't God's full heart on the matter. That was the necessary lesson for the world to see. Are we all tracking on that? So be very careful when you start patterning your life after that, if the context today does not support that. We don't want to duplicate an out-of-time system in the wrong context. All right. Let's move forward. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. By the time we get to Moses, we have Israel baked in Egyptian culture, for hundreds of years. They come out, they're their own nation, God sets them up, and he institutes male-dominated concepts. So, why did God set up the Jews through men? Well, isn't that how we all know him? God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Why are you always mentioning dudes? Right? You're the God of women too, right? Yep. Then why are you known like that? Well, that was important. God clearly chose males to lead. He chose males to contact and communicate with about his biggest plans. So why? If women are precious, why constantly go through men? There's a similar question. Why are priests of Israel only men? That's a fair question. Why was the Israelite priesthood designed to be exclusively male? 
Well, here we go. It's the curse system designed into a redemption system. What does that mean? It means the old covenant was based around leading to a need of a savior, and once again, God was going to build with a curse in mind. The curse said that woman was going to be consistently frustrated. He's going to build around that and design in the system that will ultimately lead to Jesus, who will then bring freedom to all of that. All right. I believe God chose men to lead the Jewish movement on purpose, to set up a system through the priesthood of men on purpose, directly due to the curse as a teaching tool. But along the way, he kept breaking his own rules to show that he still loved and valued women and that he could use women in any capacity that he wished. But what was the majority supposed to be? Male. Okay? The priesthood of today in the church does not follow the same pattern. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. There's a whole new covenant structure, so even if that one's male dominant, this one isn't. All right? So let's talk about God breaking his own rules, okay? We're landing this plane. Old Testament female leaders. You ready to talk about it? Okay, because he had this whole curse-built system, but he broke his own rules. Like what? Like I'm talking about Miriam. You guys remember who Miriam is? Miriam was Moses' sister. She became famous not just when she helped her little brother get into the little basket and go down the river, if you guys remember that part, but she became famous when she was older for what? She and Aaron challenged Moses' authority. Do you remember this? Do you guys remember how powerful Moses is? Moses did miracles the planet had never seen. He was a direct prophet of God. Why in the world would you challenge his authority? You go, well, he's her little brother, right? I think it's more than that. You would only challenge if you were equally gifted. All Israel knew she was equally gifted. And in fact, that was her argument. Moses, you got nothing on us. We're just as good as you are. And God came in and said, but I didn't call you, did I? Wham, hits her with leprosy. You need to go home. Wow. But if she wasn't that powerful of a female leader in Israel, she would have never been able to make that play in the first place. All right? Second person, Huldah. H-U-L-D-A-H. Josiah was this young king in Israel, and he finds out that Israel's been way off base for a really long time. He reads the Bible, and he's like, oh my gosh, what do we do? The king who has access to everyone in the nation runs to a female prophetess and says, please tell me what God wants. Okay, why in the world would that be the case? You're in a male-dominated environment, but you want to know you're the highest authority. You're the king. And who do you go to for advice about God? A female and she prophesies God's will for the nation of Israel. When you got kings bowing down to women prophetesses, God is mixing it up a little bit. Does that make sense? Hmm. How about Deborah? Yeah? Deborah. 
She was a localized judge in the nation of Israel. She was a prophetess. People came to her for wisdom, godly insight, connection to the Lord, and practical help, right? But in addition to those mega leaders, we have female heroes, yeah? These women were not technically leaders, but they were game changers. What about women like Esther, yeah? If it was not for Esther, who God selected to save his people, that's not an accident. God could have used Mordecai. He didn't. He chose Esther. God, you're breaking your own rules. What are you doing? God knows what he's doing. He's sprinkling in seeds of the future and going, nope, I still have my ladies. What about Ruth? Ruth isn't even a Jew. She's a Moabite. And God uses her to end up bringing blessing into a family. And Esther and Ruth both get their own book in the Bible. Why did God allow that? If it was all men all the time. I think that's a little bit weird. Women were prophetesses. This is very, very important. In the ancient world, imagine a world where there is no Bible. All you have is God speaking through people. Prophets and prophetesses were the de facto voice of God. They were the preachers, the wisdom, the oracles of God. There was no higher spiritual role than prophet. It was higher than priest. It was higher than king. It's the highest role because it talked directly for God. And God chose women for that office. That's bizarre. We'll talk about a little bit later that I find it a little odd that there are qualms about women preaching in a church when Paul gives instructions for women to prophesy in church. Because, let's be practical, what's more important, speaking for God directly or commenting on what God said? Speaking for God directly. So uh, it's a little odd that we have them doing direct communication from God, but they can't comment on it. Hmm, that seems a little bit weird to me. So the whole prophet thing throws a whole wrench into the system. All right, we'll talk about that a little bit later. And then we get the Proverbs 31 woman, yeah? In a male-dominated place where women were almost viewed as property, you have this woman laid out by some of the wisest people in the world, and what is she like? She's nails in business. She's powerfully strong. She runs her home. She handles buying fields and selling fields. She does it all. So it's not like there weren't seeds sown all the way through of God going, you know my women are powerful, yes? All right. Do you realize that wisdom is feminine? Okay, and you go, yeah, 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 the word's feminine, whatever. We call ships feminine, right? Like her majesty's whatever, and then you start talking about, well, this ship is named, and they talk, call it a woman. Okay, I get that. I'm not talking about the word. I'm talking about the personification in Proverbs. When the wisest man in the world wanted to talk about what wisdom was, he uses a female character and says she calls out in the streets and runs everywhere trying to get someone to understand wisdom. Wisdom personified is female. 
That's another reason why I think that Eve was not just a little helper. I think she was the consultant. Once again, these are not accidental. So let's conclude. The Old Testament guidelines are not the best template for church today. Can we agree on that? And do we really, as you look through the Old Testament and how women were treated, the rapes, the abuse, the polygamy, all that stuff, is that really the pattern that we want to continue? I don't think so. And the number one point, as I finish, is that we had the coming new covenant in Christ where Jesus was going to change everything. In that context, Jesus came. So next week, what are we going to study? What did Jesus do? How did Jesus change things? Ah, it's pretty radical. 